Today we continue in our study of First Peter, taking up at chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Please follow as I read the passage. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the preached word. Holy Father, thank you for your word today. We need the help of your spirit to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. So open up your word to us today. We want to hear from you, O living God, Father of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage today begins, As you come to him a living stone, well, this passage is about a stone and about numerous stones. But the first thing that's mentioned here is a living stone. It's not a description of some kind of gigantic rock like the rock of Gibraltar, but it is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because immediately it says, as you come to him. So it's describing a person... Uh, come to him a living stone so he's called a living stone now and then he immediately the next verse he, he says you yourselves are like living stones so we have a picture here of a great building is in the background I think it's really the temple in Jerusalem originally for the Jews uh, you might know this, that there were two, actually two temples in Jerusalem. The first one, built by Solomon, was destroyed by the Babylonian army in 586. And the people, many of them were carried off into captivity for 70 years. When they returned, they were able to eventually rebuild their temple. And it became known as Herod's Temple. 
Not as magnificent as the first temple, but it also was destroyed by a different army, this time in 70 AD by the Roman army. But Peter's not talking about buildings here. He's talking about an invincible temple that can never be destroyed. It is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the cornerstone and his people are the living stones which comprise the rest of the building. Now this picture of the Messiah being a living stone is found in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, uh, we see in verse 4 it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. This is a quote from Isaiah 28:16. Well, he says here, a living stone rejected by men, but precious in the sight of God. So, God is doing something in human history. He says, I'm laying, verse 6, in Zion a stone, a living stone. It's a very precise action that God is doing in human history. Now, Zion is the place where God's people gather for worship. Traditionally, historically, it's been focused in Jerusalem. So God was laying a stone there. He was beginning to build something in human history. Now, my brother-in-law one time built a patio in his backyard. And so he would begin with one stone, carefully lay it, flat stone, and from that one stone, the rest of the patio would be constructed. Well, what is a, what is a cornerstone? Well, it is the, the most important stone in a building made out of stones. It's placed in the corner, and from that corner, all the walls going this direction, this direction, are, are lined up. And it's usually a big, heavy, heavy stone. Uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the cornerstone, the stones were magnificent, tremendous, weighed many tons. And uh, I think the, the cornerstone that they found, one of them is like 660 tons, if I remember correctly. But they're massive stones, and it's from this cornerstone that the rest of the the uh, building is constructed. Well, the scripture here has several things to say about this living stone. First of all, the first thing he says in verse 4, it's rejected by men. Uh, John's gospel begins in its early verses in saying that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He created the world. He came to his own. They didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. And he also uh, speaks of, of himself being the cornerstone. For example, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus gives the parable of the tenants. You might uh, remember this is a, the story of a... Uh, a landowner who planted a vineyard and he hired people to take care of it and then after the crops began to come in he would send his 
employees over there to collect their portion of the harvest. And, and so these workers would beat his servants and even kill them. And so finally the landowner decided, well, I'm going to send my, my son. Surely they'll accept my son. And he sent his son, and they treated him no different. They said, in fact, in Mark 12, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Well, what will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus said? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And he begins to quote from the Old Testament. Jesus does. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He was quoting from Psalm 118. Well, the Jewish leadership were seeking to arrest Jesus. He spoke this parable, and they knew that he was talking about them. So they left him at that time. Later, however, the crowds urged on by the Jewish leadership would cry, crucify him, crucify him. And this would lead to Jesus' death on the cross. Well, there's another thing about this stone. Not only rejected by men, but it was precious in the sight of God. It was chosen and precious. So God's view of things and man's view of things can be quite different. Uh, the father loved, loved his son. At his baptism, the father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said in John 10, 17, For this reason the father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So, the son of God, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the eyes of God. Now, the scripture goes on here and says some other things about this living stone. It says in verse 8 that he's a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is taken from Isaiah 8, which says... Uh, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. And many shall stumble on it, and they'll fall and be broken, and they'll, shall be, they'll be snared and taken away. So uh, Jesus is using this scripture from the Old Testament to talk about what was happening in his day, that many people were taking offense at him, and were stumbling and falling in a spiritual way. The majority of the Hebrew people did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, even the leadership who were supposed to know the scriptures and uh, should have been able to recognize the Messiah when he arrived in human history, they rejected him because they exposed, or he exposed their hypocrisy and their sin and he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. Well, here we have the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious 
in the sight of God. The same picture is used of God's people. They are stones also, and they comprise God's house. They're being built up, he says in verse 5, as a spiritual house. Now these living stones are described quite extensively in this passage of Scripture. It's talking about Christian people, the people of God in all cultures and all ages. They're marks of the true church. Those who sincerely believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are seeking to live in conformity to His Word. So the first thing we see here, these living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. So the emphasis here is not on physical building, but on spiritual realities. That which the Holy Spirit does in the lives of God's people. They're being built up. It's an ongoing process. God is continually working in the lives of His people to conform us more into Christ's image to help us grow in our conformity to the Word of God. God is interested in our spiritual development. He's also interested in other aspects of our humanity, but this is primary. Uh, Buildings are important, and we need them to worship in, but the focus here is on spiritual houses. I remember one time I went with my mom when uh, one of the people she knew had passed away down in Houston, and the memorial service was at this Roman Catholic church. So I took her there, and uh, it was a beautiful building, just very lovely. But the doctrine of the Catholic Church has many serious errors that point people away from Christ and toward their own uh, traditions and practices. So a beautiful building doesn't necessarily indicate conformity to Christian doctrine. It's nice to have a building, but we need to have biblical fidelity for the people uh, worshiping in the building. Now, God is building a spiritual house on the earth, a spiritual temple, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. His purpose is to reflect God's glory. Now, he also calls this, in verse 5, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In verse 8, he calls it a royal priesthood. What is a priesthood? In the Old Testament, there was a family that was descended from Moses and Aaron, who were of the tribe of Levi. They were designated as the, the priests, the high priest. And then the rest of the tribe of Levi were to assist them in their ministry. Now, Exodus 19.6 says this to the nation of Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. The Lord was telling Moses. So, the priests of the Old Testament, what were their duties? What did they do? I think we need to think about this. It might be helpful because we are called to be priests. Okay, so what was the ministry of the Old Testament priests? What did they do? Well, the book of Hebrews speaks about this in chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Specifically about the high priest. He says, Every high priest is chosen from among men as appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is the work of a priest. To act in relationship to God, to offer sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. So a priest has to be a person, a man, so he can understand other men, that he can understand the weaknesses and temptations of other men. You can't be a priest unless you're a man, in the biblical sense of the word. Uh, And it says here, and the high priest, he had to offer sins First for himself, his family, and then for the people. And he had to be called by God. Now, some of the duties of the Levitical priests included these things. To teach the people the statues and laws that the Lord gave them. Another thing they were to do was to offer sacrifices in the temple. Moses in Leviticus 9-7 said to Aaron, the first high priest, draw near to the altar, offer your sin offering, your burnt offering, make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So there was this constant offering of sacrifices for sin. The presence of sin in the people's lives was very predominant. Because in the temple, animals were continually being killed and their blood poured out to cover human sin. Now, another thing that the priest did was uh, one of their duties. They were to inspect ceremonially, ceremonially unclean persons for various diseases. They acted like a doctor. So, for example... Uh, in Leviticus 13, verse 9, says, When a man's afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there's a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there's raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. So there's quite a wide range of duties that these priests performed. Another thing they did, they took the tithes of the people. And then they also offered their own tithe. From the tithe they received, they offered it to the Lord at the temple. Another ministry of the priest was to decide uh, legal cases, uh, disputes among people. For example, Deuteronomy 17 says, If any case arises requiring 
decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right or another, one kind of assault or another, if it's too difficult for you, go to the place the Lord will choose, come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who's in office, and you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. So this acting as a judge in legal matters was another part of the ministry of the priest. Now, they were to offer many kinds of offerings at the temple. They're called burnt offerings. The whole animal was burned up. Meal offerings, grain, sin offerings, guilt offerings. They released the scapegoat into the wilderness that symbolically carried off the sins of the people. Peace offerings, fellowship offerings, drink offerings, thank offerings. They performed these duties throughout the year. Now, another function of the priests was to help serve as worship leaders in the congregational worship. For example, David selected certain Levites. This is 1 Chronicles 16.4. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord this was the Ark of the Covenant in the very center of the temple, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. And it lists several others who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Others were to blow trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant. It says in verse 7, Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Now, this concept of thanksgiving, of sacrifices, of worship being made to the Lord is found in the Old Testament. For example, let me give you a few of them. Psalm 50, verse 14, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. These sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving often indicated certain things. To make a sacrifice was costly. You had to buy a perfect animal. And so it wasn't cheap. Many people could not afford that. They had to use a smaller animal like a, a a pigeon. Now, the sacrifices sometimes involved contrition, that is, sorrow for sin. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So these priests were involved in this relationship of people to God and the awareness of their sins. And then there were exhortations to praise. Psalm 107, 22, Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. There were thanks, uh, thanksgiving sacrifices. Psalm 141, 2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifices. So, the ministry of the priests 
involved many things, including the encouragement of people in the worship and thanksgiving of God. Now, let's jump to the New Testament. What kind of ministry do priests in the New Testament have? Well, David Wheaton, in his commentary on this passage, notes this. In the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, kingship and priesthood were never united, except in Melchizedek, the king-priest of Jerusalem, this mysterious figure, and in the Messiah. So, Saul one time made the mistake of trying to make sacrifices because he got impatient that the priest did not arrive, so he made his own sacrifices, and he was rebuked for doing that. King David, for example, never went into the temple to make sacrifices. He never usurped the place of the priest. They were separate ministries, separate callings. That's not true, though, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, kingship and priestship are united, first of all, in Christ and then in God's people. It's interesting that the word for priesthood in the New Testament is only used for the corporate ministry of believers to one another. The word priesthood is not used of the ministers. They're pastors, elders, overseers. But the priesthood itself is given to the people of God. You are a holy priesthood, the scripture says. Well, in the New Testament, what kind of sacrifices are we to make? We don't kill animals because Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for our sins. Well, what we do present is our own selves to God. Hebrews 12.1, the writer says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We don't bring an animal. We bring ourselves. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. What a great privilege we have to use our lives as a living sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. These are the kinds of sacrifices that New Testament priests like you and me are to do. To offer continual praises to God. The book of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. We minister to one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We don't come and just sing to hear ourselves sing. No, we come to corporately worship God, to admonish and encourage one another 
and the worship of God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Now there's another kind of sacrifice that we're to do. Not only worship, praise, and thanksgiving, but he goes on here in, in Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there's this upward kind of sacrifice to God and then a parallel sacrifice to those around us, to various people, to do good, to share what we have. So these are also New Testament priesthood sacrifices, doing good works in the name of Jesus, not to try to earn merit before God, but out of a grateful heart of thanksgiving and compassion for people. Now, New Testament priests are to minister to one another. We have many of these so-called one another passages in the New Testament. Let me just give you two or three of them. Romans 12.10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. James 5.16 Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How are we to be a good New Testament priest? We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to share our burdens with one another. If you have a burden, share it with a brother or sister. Or if you see a brother or sister with a burden, help them carry that burden. So they don't have to carry it alone. Well, he says you're a holy priesthood <clears throat> to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, in uh, verse 9, he says you're a chosen race, a holy nation. Now, the Jews were a chosen nation. Exodus 19, the Lord says this, verse 5, Exodus 19, 5. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. The Lord is speaking to the Israelites. You shall be my treasured possession of all the peoples of the earth. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is being described here, as it's been noted by some biblical scholars, that at that time in the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, Eastern kings kept a private treasury for their own expenses. They had the public treasury to pay for all the expenses of the kingdom and their own private treasury. So, when it says, you're my treasure possession, it's really a reference to this cultural reality that existed at that time. That the Lord has his own private treasure over here. That's his people. And he's got them reserved for his special purpose and love. Malachi chapter 3. 
speaks of those who fear the Lord. The Lord paid attention to them and said to them, Malachi 3.17, They shall be mine, said the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So the Lord looks upon us as his own people of treasured possession. Verse 9, we're a people for God's own possession. Now, Paul writes about this in Titus 2.14. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's no doubt that God saves his people because he has a special love and care for them. But he doesn't have for the rest of the population on earth. Well, we're a holy nation, a people set apart for God. What's the purpose of Him choosing us, of making us priests, people of His own possession? It says here in verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, as a living stone in the household of God, we're to minister to one another as priests, but we're also to look outward from the church to the world around us and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I was talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about sharing the gospel and I mentioned the fact that even if the person that we're sharing the gospel with never comes to faith, the fact that we got to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory and His redemption brings glory to Him. Amen. Whether anybody accepts it or not, we're glorifying the Savior. We hope they'll accept it. But even if they don't, they've gotten a picture from our own gospel sharing of who Christ is and what he's done. Well, Paul is talking here about what the gospel did for him and the ministry that was given to him, he speaks in Acts 26, 18. He said he was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, that is set apart, sanctified by faith in me. So Paul was declaring the excellencies of him who had called him out of his own darkness into Christ's magnificent light. Paul tells the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. I mean, that is a radical change as much as you could possibly experience one time he says you are dark you're not only in darkness you are darkness you are darkness 
You were full of darkness. You were spreading darkness. You were an agent of Satan. But now you are light. You're light in the Lord. And your light is shining. So that others can see and hear and understand the gospel. He says, walk as children of light. Well, this passage ends up in verse 10. Peter is reminding these people, most of them who were no doubt Gentiles, of the great blessings they had received from God. And he says, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. One time you were outside the realm of those who were saved and set apart for God. You were living outside of the commonwealth, the fellowship of believers. But that has changed. Now you are God's people. This is a quote from Hosea. Where Scripture says, in the place where it was said, Hosea 1, 9, You are not my people, it shall be said of them, children of the living God. You are my people, you have received mercy. Formerly you were no mercy, but now you are my people. This is true. Before we came to know the gospel and know Jesus, we had not received mercy. If we had died outside of Christ, we would have ended up in hell. But God in mercy preserved us till the gospel was brought to us so that we could hear and believe and be saved. Having not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Well, we see in this passage today that there is the cornerstone, the living stone, who is Jesus. He is rejected by men, by the builders, but he's chosen and precious to God. And that those who believe in him will not be put to shame. He is the cornerstone of the kingdom of God, of the church. But to those who refuse to believe, he's the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. They fall on him and will be broken to pieces. So here's Christ, the cornerstone, the living stone, is the chief stone, the foundation of the church. And the church, the living stones, the people of God are built upon him. It is a spiritual house that we are part of. We are a holy priesthood. We've been set apart to be ministers to one another. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the ministry of the pastors and teachers there to equip the saints for their ministry. Right? Who are the real ministers in this congregation? It's you all. You're the ministers. To minister to one another. To minister to people in your family, in your neighborhood. People you rub shoulders with. 
So we, the living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We don't offer blood of animals. We offer our own bodies, our own minds, our souls, all that we have as an offering to God out of gratitude and praise. We're chosen. We didn't choose ourselves. We have become part of God's treasured possession, a special group of people that he set his love upon and he called out of the world to be his own. But we're called not only to be ministers, to be priests to one another, but to reach out into the world. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Well, we're thankful for this great living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his mercy and love in calling us to be living stones in his church. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for this great living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent to save us from our sins and to bring us into your everlasting kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be living sacrifices, to put our all on the altar of service and devotion to you, you're a great king. You're a great savior. You're worthy, O oh Lord, of all of our service, all of our worship, all of our praise. Strengthen us. We pray that we might be worthy servants in your household. Use us, Lord, to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ to those around us. We pray with thanksgiving in our Savior's name. Amen.